0: Though my memories of this are a little bit fuzzy and vague, I feel like it was sometime back during the pandemic, probably 2020 or 2021, that I saw one of these little videos online, and it was trying to probably encourage people and kind of normalize the situation that we were all facing at the time and and they were they were just kind of running through history and and something to the effect was said that the the history of mankind is one catastrophe after another. And they were, you know, listing off some things and I can't remember specifics, but I suppose they probably said the bubonic plague, the Thirty Years' War, you know, all all these things. Just just think back in history. Uh, the history of mankind is one catastrophic event after another. And That's really life, isn't it, in a fallen world. And that's the life that we live. That's the life that ancient Israel and Judah were living when Isaiah prophesied these words that we're going to be considering this morning to them. These words were spoken in a time of of trial, a time of difficulty, and they were pointing forward to the coming of Christ, and his coming would be in a time of difficulty, a time of trial, People would be walking in darkness even when Christ came. And likewise, fast forward 2,000 years to us, our times are difficult. Maybe our problems are different from what theirs were, but pick your poison. We've all got our problems and our difficulties and our trials, and yet there's hope in the midst of that. And so let's turn in our Bibles, if we would, to Isaiah chapter 9 and consider This wonderful prophecy of the coming of our Lord through the prophet Isaiah. And so Isaiah writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says this But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For to us a child will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, last week when we were looking to the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, we saw how in the midst of this great military threat that the nation of Judah was facing, how the Lord promised deliverance to the wicked king Ahaz and how he had given the sign of that deliverance that the virgin would conceive and would bear a son whose name would be Emmanuel, And, of course, that prophecy finds its fulfillment in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we look to Isaiah chapter 9, we find that here, too, the Lord is giving a word of hope in a dark time, a word of hope which is ultimately fulfilled in the birth and coming and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah chapter 8, which separates the two chapters... Separating these two prophecies of Christ, in that chapter it was prophesied that the nation of Assyria would wreak havoc on the Arameans and on the northern kingdom of Israel. You find that in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 4. The Arameans and the northern kingdom of Israel, if you were with us last week, those were the two nations who were combined together creating a military threat against the southern kingdom of Judah whose king was Ahaz. Ahaz. The prophecy of Isaiah 8.4 made it clear that the Assyrians were going to take the wealth of Damascus, which was the capital of the kingdom of Aram, and that the Assyrians were going to take the spoil of Samaria, which is to say they were going to plunder the northern kingdom of Israel. And historically speaking, 2 Kings 15.29 gives us a bit of a window into how some of this went down. And there we read this, that in the day of Pekah, king of Israel... Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Aijon and Ababeth-Meaca and Genoa and Kedesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. And so what this means then is that the Assyrians began kind of eating away at the northern kingdom of Israel. These regions that were there spoken of, Gilead, Galilee, the land of Naphtali, and so on, these these were northern parts of the northern kingdom of Israel. And in subjugating those regions, the Assyrians did what they characteristically did when they captured an area. That is to say, they carried off captives, and then they also... uh, seem to repopulate them with, with people from other areas. And so it seems that it is in this context of Assyria attacking the northern kingdom of Israel and carving off sections for themselves, taking off the population and bringing in others, that these words of Isaiah chapter 9 were spoken by Isaiah. As it appears from the context, the final verse of chapter 8, if you look up there, this context seems to be a context of distress and darkness and gloom of anguish. It's a context of hard times. But in that season of hard times, when hope seemed to be flickering and dying, there comes this prophecy of hope, this prophecy of light. Look there to to verses 1 and 2. But there will be no more gloom. For her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Though in the days of Isaiah the prophet, there was gloom and anguish in the land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali, nevertheless, Isaiah announces that this day is coming when there would be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In Isaiah's day, the Lord had treated that land with contempt by allowing it to be captured by the Assyrians as a just recompense for the wickedness of the people. But by God's grace, that was not going to be the end of the story. Later on, he shall make it glorious. And, and I suspect that there may be an element of this uh, fact that the Assyrians would repopulate areas that they had conquered with other peoples that that may factor into why this is spoken of as as Galilee of the Gentiles. There may be some other historical reasons why this is spoken of, but uh, but nevertheless, this is Galilee of the Gentiles that is spoken of here. And what could account for this great change in in circumstances? It's there in verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And as the prophecy continues, verses 6 and 7 make clear that this light comes on account of the child who was to be born, this child who is our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, it should come as no surprise at all that we read these words in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 and following, as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, this is what Matthew tells us. He says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land Of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The people were walking in darkness, even in the time of the first century when Christ came. They were under the heel of Roman authority, but yet, They saw a great light. The people who were walking in the spiritual darkness of their hearts on account of their sin and on account of the the tyranny of Satan. And just to, to think for a moment about the tyranny of Satan, just think of all the demonic activity, explicit and overt demonic activity that we see going on in the Gospels when Jesus is ministering there in Galilee and in Jerusalem. There is all of these wicked and evil things going on, all of this darkness And yet, the light has come. They saw the light of the world. They saw Jesus. And then in verse 3, we see the the blessings that would attend that coming of Christ. There is the multiplication of the nation. There's an increase in gladness. Gladness as in the presence of the Lord. Gladness that resembles the time of harvest and the time of plundering an enemy. And why would those blessings come? Well, it's because of what you find in verse 4. That the Lord would break the yoke of their burden... He would break the rod of the oppressor which was laid on their shoulders. And even in the language that is used there, Isaiah seems to be drawing on imagery from from Israel's past. That language of the the yoke of their burden and so on seems to to point back to the slavery in Egypt. And so the slavery of Egypt was described in Leviticus 26.13 by the Lord where he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. And similarly, Psalm eighty-one six, the Lord speaks there by saying, I relieved his shoulder of the burden. There's this burden that was laid on the people in Egypt. The Lord broke it off. And so also Isaiah is prophesying this time when the Lord was going to break the yoke of their burden. There was still a burden that was on the people. It wasn't the Egyptian slavery, but there was a burden. The implication is that there was going to be a new exodus. The Lord had done this sort of thing for his people once before, and he announces through Isaiah that he's going to do it again when the light comes, when the child is born. And the the latter part of verse 4 makes a passing reference to the battle of Midian, which is hearkening back to, to Gideon in the book of Judges. And such a reference is very apt, I think, given the whole conglomeration of things that Isaiah is speaking about here. Gideon's army was drawn explicitly from the tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, therefore, indicating that his exploits took place in that same region of Israel, that northern part of Israel. And the Allusion to Gideon is also applicable in that if you think back to the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, the Lord was making it very clear all throughout that the victory was from him. It was he who delivered Israel from the hands of Midian, and he did it in the most unlikely of ways. Just remember how Gideon's army was whittled down to 300 men, how they went out at night with the pitchers, the trumpets, and the lamps. The Lord was, was very clear all throughout that the victory was from him, not through military strength or worldly wise methods of warfare. The battle was the Lord's and the victory was the Lord's. And so Isaiah, in using this language, is hearkening back to these prior deliverances which the Lord had granted to his people. And therefore, he's also painting a picture for us of what this future deliverance would be for the people of God. It would be a new exodus the people in which the yoke of their bondage would be broken and they would walk in freedom. It would be a new victory over their enemies which the Lord would gain by the strength of his own might and for his own glory and then verse 5 if you look there it points to the peace that would follow unless we see the accoutrements of war the boots of the booted warrior and the cloaks rolled in blood would be destroyed in fire because the battle is over Unless there would be no more need for them. The foe would be defeated, the war done. And all of these things, Isaiah was prophesying the coming of a great day, a day when the gloom would be taken away, when the great light would come to those who walk in darkness. It would be a day of gladness in the presence of the Lord, a day of deliverance, a day of victory, which would be followed by peace. And then finally, we get to part that most of us are most familiar with from this passage, verses 6 and 7, which tells us of the one through whom these blessings of God would come. A child would be born, a son would be given, and he would be the source of all of these great blessings, the light, the victory, the peace. It all comes on account of this child who would be born. Now, let's notice there in, in verses 6 and 7 just what we learn about this son who will be given. We see that he will govern, right? That the government will rest on his shoulders. And that theme of government is uh, picked up on and expressed further down in verse 7. And so, uh, we'll come back in just a moment to the, the names by which he will be called. But first, let's, let's look to this theme of, of his governing, his government that we see there. The government is said to rest on his shoulders. Now, that is to say that he will be responsible for governing his people. His government is one that will be continually increasing. This is not an expanding government bureaucracy the way some of you might be familiar with, but rather this is Christ's kingdom continually expanding, taking in more and more people, more and more nations. There will be no end of peace. We're told that he reigns on the throne of David and over David's kingdom, that he establishes it and upholds it with justice and righteousness. And this begins at his coming and continues on forevermore. And do we not find these very things fulfilled in the child who was given, Jesus Christ our Lord? He is responsible for governing. The government rests on his shoulders. Not only is Christ the head of the body, the church, but we also find in Ephesians chapter one, verses twenty through twenty-two, that Christ is at the Father's right hand. In the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And so Christ is not only head of the church, he certainly is, but God the Father has put all things in subjection under his feet. Christ is the ruler of all. And David had prophesied this earlier in Psalm 110, which we sang this morning. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And likewise, the angel Gabriel had said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, before Jesus was born, that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. What is this but the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, right? The the promise that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7, that the throne of David's kingdom would be established forever. And the way this is ultimately fulfilled is not that it is established through a never-ending line of fallible kings who live and reign and fade away, and die, and pass their crown on to a son. Now, that was the succession pattern for a while, but ultimately, this kingdom is established in that the crown comes to one man, this son who would be given, and who would reign forever. And the government of this kingdom, the crown of this kingdom, would rest on his head forever. And as king, his government is one that is always expanding. Again, this is the taking in continually of new subjects to come under his authority. And if you think back to that prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 of that stone that is cut without hands that smashed into the, the feet of the statue and tumbled it over, we're told there that what that means is that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will never be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever and likewise if you think to Daniel chapter 7 Daniel told of how he saw one like a son of man who went up to the ancient of days and was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed but with all of that said we need to be mindful of what Jesus taught us about his kingdom. All right, we read these, these glorious things, and they are truly glorious, and they are truly fulfilled, but we need to frame it in the way that Jesus explained it, so that we are not mistaken in our expectations of it. He said the Pilate, his kingdom is not of this world. John eighteen thirty-six, and he spoke to the Pharisees of the internal nature of the kingdom. Luke 17,20 and 21, when he said, "The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, "Look, here it is," or "There it is." For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst." And that is to say that this kingdom is, is different than earthly kingdoms. It's a kingdom which is spiritual and internal. Or as Paul put it in Romans 14:17, "It consists of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a kingdom in which sin and Satan and death are defeated. Those who had served Satan and sin and had been slaves to fear and death are brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God and submit themselves to the son of David. And as to the increase of his kingdom, Jesus himself gives us a hint in that parable of the mustard seed. He himself asked that question. He said, How shall we compare the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? And he gave the answer himself by that parable of the mustard seed. He said that the kingdom of God was like a mustard seed. Now, the mustard seed was proverbial in the ancient world for its smallness. Jesus described it as smaller than all seeds that are upon the soil but its smallness and its seeming insignificance notwithstanding this grows and becomes larger than the other plants of the garden with branches large enough that the birds of the air can nest in it and under its shade it grows up into a bush or a small tree it was said that the mustard plant could grow to the heights of 10 or 12 feet and that its branches could be 3 to 4 inches thick and Apparently one of the ancient Jewish rabbis said that he had a stalk of mustard seed in his field that that he could climb up in it as the men would climb into a fig tree. The correspondence that Jesus is making between the mustard seed and the kingdom of God is that they both start out small and seemingly insignificant. And then they go on to become the most significant, more significant than, than anything else. As it was with the mustard seed, so it is with the kingdom of God. The Son of God became incarnate, being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, born under very lowly beginnings in a stable. But yet, this was the child who was born to us. This was the Son given to us, whose government would have no end. The government will rest on His shoulders. Jesus began preaching in those backwater districts of Galilee saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Sometimes his own family thought he had lost his mind. Sometimes his own brothers did not believe in him. He swam against the tide of the religious leaders of his day, betrayed by one of his own disciples, condemned by the ruling body of his people and crucified on a Roman cross And even after he had risen from the dead and appeared to the apostles and on one occasion appeared to more than 500, what were they compared to all the people of the world and compared to the strength of the Roman Empire? These were some unlikely sources for a kingdom that would begin and would outlast and would overcome all of the others. But it did. The kingdom of God started out small and seemingly insignificant. This kingdom was inaugurated during the earthly ministry of our Lord and was spread through the ministry of the the apostles and the church. It didn't begin large, but it became a force with which to be reckoned. And this is how the Old Testament prophesied that it would be, that there would be no end to the increase of his government. And we're told here in Isaiah 9, verse 7, that Christ upholds, This kingdom with justice and righteousness. A stark contrast to many of the kingdoms of this world who are too often marked by tyranny, corruption, deception, violence. Not so with Christ and his kingdom. He upholds it with justice and righteousness. His judgments are true and just. And though for a time it may appear that Christ's servants get the short end of the stick, as indeed we often do here in this world, being subject to persecution and the slander of the evil world, just hold tight for a time, because this situation will not last. Our Lord Jesus will return and will judge the world with justice. And his enemies, as we have said and sung, will become a footstool for his feet. And when that happens, those wonderful words of Isaiah 25 8 and 9 will be fulfilled, where we read this, that he will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Such is the government which this son will bring. Now, what of his names? His names are given to us there in verse 6. Depending on how you count them, you might find four or perhaps five designations there at the end of verse 6. We have Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. When I say you might find four or five designations, there's been historically a bit of a question as to whether wonderful and counselor are separate designations or whether they are, in fact, one and the same. And this question is even reflected a bit in our English translations of the verse. And so if you're looking at, uh, say, the King James, or I think New King James did the same, you'll notice that there's a comma inserted between wonderful and counselor. And if you're familiar at all with uh, Handel's Messiah, you might even hear it in the cadence. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. The mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. You notice there's kind of a space, a rest almost, between wonderful and counselor. But on the other hand, our modern translations don't have a comma, indicating that at least the, uh, the more modern translators see this as a, as a compound designation, such that Christ is wonderful counselor. Now, surely I think it is a small matter. Whichever, one, uh, whichever side toward which one may incline in this question. Surely, if Christ is a counselor at all, and he is, he is a wonderful counselor. And surely, if he is a wonderful counselor, then he is wonderful in every other way as well. Christ is wonderful counselor. And, and by this, we should think in terms of, of his teaching and his wisdom, which he passes on to us. Christ is our teacher who has... Revealed the Father to us. Just think of his words in John fifteen fifteen, where he says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So Christ is our, is our teacher. He's our preceptor, our counselor. And also, as wonderful counselor, Christ is our wisdom. So think of 1 Corinthians 1.30, where Paul says that he has become to us wisdom from God. Think likewise of Colossians 2.3, where we are told that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And not only is Christ wonderful counselor, he is mighty God. The, this child was a son. right? If you, if you look there, this child would be born a son of God would be given to us, and this Son would be mighty God. And in this we, we see the great truth of the Incarnation, that He who was God became man for us. This is the literal fulfillment of what we saw last week in Isaiah 7.14, that the Virgin would bear a Son who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. This is exactly what we find in John chapter 1. So if you think of the beginning verses of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Then think down, lower in the passage, John 1, 14. The Word, he who was eternal God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This child is mighty God. This child is also eternal Father. And this, of course, speaks not to his position as the Son of God within the Godhead, as within the Godhead, he is the eternal Son of God and not God the Father. But as John Gill rightly, I think, expressed it, he said, Christ is a father with respect to chosen men who were given to him as his children and offspring in the covenant and who are regenerated by his spirit and grace. And Christ is a father unto these everlasting. He will never die and they shall never be left fatherless. He and they will ever continue in this relation. He as such supplies them with everlasting provisions Clothes them with everlasting raiment. He gives them an everlasting portion. Promotes them to everlasting honor. Saves them with everlasting salvation. Bearing an everlasting love to them. And indeed, if we think back to uh, the words of Isaiah 8.18, if you you look back uh, just just a few verses earlier there, um, Isaiah uh, says this, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me, are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And the interesting thing, though, is that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13, the writer to the Hebrews puts these words on the lips of Christ Behold, I am the children whom God has given me. In other words, Christ is a father to his people. And I think also that the language of Psalm 89 30 could point to Christ as a father, a father to his people who have trusted in him. So this child is wonderful counselor, he is mighty God, he is everlasting father, and he is also prince of peace. Though it is true that his coming and his kingdom, as he himself said, brings not peace but a sword between his people and the people of the world, nevertheless, truly, Christ is Prince of Peace. And similarly, the prophet Micah speaks of him, Micah 5.5, 5, and says, this one will be our peace. How so? Well, we find in Ephesians 2.14 that Christ himself is our peace, that he's the one who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall between Jew and Greek, making the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And as we read together this morning from Ephesians 2.17, Christ is the one who came preaching peace, and therefore that means that he is the one who establishes peace between us and God. He's the one who came preaching peace to those who were near and to those who were far away. And as significant as it is to be at peace with one another in the body of Christ here on earth, it is a matter of far greater significance that we be at peace with God. And Christ brings that peace about for us. And therefore the apostle says in Romans 5.1, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who accomplishes all of these wonderful things for us. He is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Now, we've seen in these seven verses of this prophecy, we've seen how Isaiah was foretelling some 700 years before the fact of this coming Messiah and who he would be in terms of of what he would do, the, the victory, the light, the peace that he would bring, and also in terms of what his names are. That is to say, these designations which indicate his offices, the functions which he will fulfill for his people. Now, I'm sure that much more could be said concerning these seven verses in Isaiah than I have said this morning, and I'm sure that there is much here, more, that could be mined for your edification and instruction than than what I've done this morning. But in our last few minutes, allow me to try to bring these words home to you, wherever you may be. Now, there may be some of you here this morning who feel that you, like these of old, are living in a season of darkness and confusion and full of difficulty. Life is really like that sometimes. But I want you to understand that there is good news for you from Isaiah's prophecy here. Isaiah prophesied concerning people who would be walking in darkness. And he said that they would see the light. And the light that Isaiah prophesied has come. Jesus was born into the world to lighten the darkness. He said, I am the light of the world he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's John eight twelve. If all around you is darkness and confusion, look to Christ. There's no guarantee the problems will go away, but Christ is the light, and he lightens the darkness so that you can see what you ought to do. He brings his people out of the darkness of sin and into the light of righteousness. Look to Christ. Trust in him. I think one commentator was helpful on this passage in Isaiah when he said, As always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they will live by. Are they to look at the darkness, the hopelessness, the dreams shattered and conclude that God has forgotten them? Or are they to recall his past mercies, to remember his present promises, and to make great affirmations of faith? The darkness is true, but it is not the whole truth, and certainly not the fundamental truth. The light of the world has come. Turn to Christ and walk in his light. Now, there may be some of you who feel hopelessly bewildered in life. The world can, in a way, be a very odd and confusing place. To you, too, I say, look to Christ He is a wonderful counselor. He bids those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him. And among other things, if you think to that passage in Matthew 11, he bids them to learn from him. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn. Learn from me. And so seek the instruction of Jesus. Seek his guidance. We find his revealed will for us here in the pages of Holy Scripture and his wisdom For the bewildering circumstances of life and of this world are there for the asking. Think James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. There may be some of you this morning who have never yet entered into a saving relationship with God. As it stands, you are still estranged from him, separated from him because of your sins. As things currently stand, you are not at peace with God. You stand condemned in your sin and still under the wrath of God. And there is nothing that you can do in your own power to change any of that. To you too, I say, look to Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. By his death on the cross, he took away the enmity of the law of God, which all of us have broken. He took it away for all who will trust in him. For all who will come to him to be reconciled to God the Father through him. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. And he saved his people from their sins by dying on the cross and rising again from the grave three days later. And the call of the gospel is to repent, to turn away from your sins and to believe in him. Christ establishes peace with God for all who come to him in faith. And if you have more questions about what this means, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about how you, too, can have peace with God through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And as we remember and celebrate the birth of our Lord in these days, let us remember what we've seen here, the biblical truth. And let us believe that truth and In believing, let us have all joy and peace through him. Remember that the gospel is really good news. The birth of this son is also the birth of the one who is mighty God. This is of paramount importance and permanent importance. There was one minister from olden times who so beautifully described Christ and his work for us It's well worth hearing. He said, This blessed Savior is our light and our life, our salvation and felicity, our knowledge, our justification, our sanctification and redemption. This is our true Son bringing healing in His wings, whose rays spread health and happiness wherever they shine. No sooner do we look at Him than we are enlightened. He is the propitiatory sacrifice which covers us from the wrath of God and blots our sins from His book. He's the tree of life, the heavenly manna giving immortality to our souls. He is our David, the glorious prince who has defeated all our enemies, our Solomon who has established a permanent and inviolable peace. He's delivered us from the ignorance in which we were plunged and revealed to us the mysteries of God. He has expiated the sins under which our consciences groaned and has given them perfect peace. He has snatched us from the tomb, or we should say rather from hell, and opened to us the gates of heaven. And instead of this frail and miserable existence that we derive from the first Adam, he has prepared for us another, full of glory and happiness, incorruptible and divine. Slaves of Satan, he has made children of God. That, my friends, is what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. That's who Christ is. All praise be to God that to us a child has been born, to us a son has been given. All praise to God that His zeal, indeed, has accomplished such a great salvation for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks that these words have been fulfilled in the birth of Christ. And though we live in the age between the ages, in which we live in the already but the not yet of the kingdom, when the kingdom has been established, but we wait for the final execution of all justice and righteousness in it, Father, we pray that we would live with patience, with faith, and with hope, that you would strengthen us, that you would build us up, that we would be ever joyful knowing Christ and knowing what he has accomplished for us. We pray that we would submit to him and serve him and trust in him in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.